You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to take a bit of a march through the book of Romans this afternoon as we consider the will of God. And so I would encourage you as we read these passages to look particularly for what they say about God's will, his plan, his purpose, and his commands for his people and for this whole world. Romans, we begin in chapter 2, verse 17, the words of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And we'll turn further in the book of Romans to chapter 8. Verses 5 through 11. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. And we turn to Romans chapter 12. I'd actually like to begin reading at chapter 11, verse 33. The Apostle Paul praises the unsearchable judgments and plan of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we'll turn, lastly, to Romans chapter 15, the verses 30 and 31. 
I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it was the philosopher Aristotle who believed that the chief end of humanity was our happiness. If you've ever read any Aristotle, then you'll know that he was a very smart guy. He was very perceptive. He ruled out a lot of things as he would work through his philosophy. And in pulling all those things together from his perspective, he found that the chief end, the highest goal that we have as human beings is to be happy. He wasn't the first person to think this, and he wasn't the last person to think this. In fact, I guess that most people would suggest in some way, by some manner of speaking, that the goal of their lives is happiness. That's what motivates them. That's why they do what they do. Even if only subconsciously, we, yes, we have this desire to be happy, to experience joy. Who wants to not be happy? Who doesn't? want joy. And if we're honest with ourselves, then we would realize that this basic desire motivates a lot more of our decisions than we realize. This desire to be happy, to be joyful, to be satisfied, content, all those words that come along with joy and happiness. Happiness is a deep down desire. As we dig into the third petition this afternoon, the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, that is, the prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray, we're getting deeper down into the area of those deep-down desires. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ begins, in teaching us how to pray, begins with the the very general, the, the honor of God's name. And then he goes to the more specific request that God's kingdom would come. And now he he goes deeper and he has us ask concerning our deep down desires. He goes right down into the realm of our will, our desires and decisions, what motivates us to do what we do. And so, as we consider the third petition this afternoon, at the very outset, I would say be warned, be careful, be cautious. 
as you hear the word of God about your will and about the Lord's will. Because we're getting right down into the the deep desires that you have and what motivates you. And the word of God is going to come to those desires this afternoon and it's going to challenge them. It's going to challenge them. Jesus Christ challenges his disciples regarding their wills, their deep down desires. The Lord Jesus Christ challenges us about what is motivating us in our lives. What are we pursuing? What is the chief end of our lives, of all that we do? In teaching us to pray this petition, our Lord Jesus is calling, in fact, for a radical reorientation of our deep down desires. He's, he's calling, he's asking us to pray for a radical reorientation of our will. And through that of our entire lives. And so it is about happiness. It is about joy. But it's perhaps not in the way we might expect. As the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us the way to pray for joy. He teaches us to pray that we would deny our own will. He teaches us to pray that we might know God's will. And he teaches us to pray that we might find joy in God's will. So first, the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray for the power, the strength to deny our own will. So what is Jesus teaching here? Well, as he teaches us to pray, your will be done, it is in contrast to our own wills being done. The your will in this petition is in contrast to my will or your will. Martin Luther said it this way, we judge and accuse ourselves when we pray this petition by our very words, declaring that we are disobedient to God and do not do his will. For if we really did his will, this petition would not be necessary. We pray for God's will to be done. We're therefore saying that we are not doing it. And our Lord Jesus Christ certainly taught this opposition between God's will and our own wills to his disciples. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Those words were in the form for the catechism, uh, uh, the form for the, for baptism as we read earlier in the service. That's our prayer for Michael Reed. That's our prayer for all of God's children that we would have this denial in our lives. The call couldn't be any more stark. The radical denial of what, of the totality of my desires, everything that is natural to me needs to be denied, needs to, needs to die, needs in fact, as the Lord Jesus puts it, to be killed, take up my cross, and I need to pursue a radical submission to the will of the Father in following Jesus. The sort of radical submission that is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified. I, me, my will, 
has been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And of course, in our much-loved Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer, Lord's, uh, Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but that I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian life calls for a radical denial. And this petition urges us to pray to God for that. Now, the question, of course, is why? Why this call for radical denial? Well, it is because of our sinful nature. It's because of the corruption of our will. This is the human condition. The part of our sinfulness into which we're all conceived and born. Our wills are corrupt. The Apostle Paul summarized that in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 1, he's speaking about the Gentiles and he shows how corrupted their wills have become so that they've rejected God and they've, they've begin, begun to serve created things and, and their desires have been turned over into all sorts of wickedness. And so you might think, well, the problem with the Gentiles, of course, is that they don't know what's right. They don't know what they have to do. So then Paul turns his, turns his attention to the Jews. He says, well, what about you? You, you know, don't you? You have the will of God. You have the commandments. You, you have all that God has given you. Certainly the Jews would be able to do what is right. But what's the result for even God's people? God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The history of Israel shows that, that knowing God's commands, Having them before you does not help. It's too superficial. It's too on the outside. The change needs to begin deep down in our desires, in our will. And so the problem that Martin Luther, of course, identified and that the word of God clearly testifies to is the corruption and sinfulness of our hearts. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 7, in the sinful nature, I am a slave to the law of sin. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray. Yes, we need to remember that we're in the prayer section here. This is why the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray this. If my will is corrupt, then... How can I even muster within myself a desire to do what is good and pleasing and perfect to God? If my deepest, downest desires are wrong, how can I ever desire what is right? How can I even begin to do the will of God? And so this is why we must pray. Because this work of of changing the orientation of our wills is not our work. It's not what we do. This is work that God does. This is his job. We're helpless in ourselves, in our own strength. We need a power greater and more righteous in every way than our own. In order to change, we need to be changed. We need to be changed by God. And change is possible. Because with God, all things are possible. That's the hope expressed in this petition. 
The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't teach us to pray this in vain. No. Change is possible by God's strength and by God's power. In fact, it is God's will that we would be changed. Now, some have concluded that if our basic deep-down desire is for our own happiness, and our deep-down desires are all wrong, they're opposed to God's desires, God's will, then they conclude it must be God's will that we would not be happy. Right? Our deep-down desire, our corrupt desire is that we would be happy, me personally would be happy, and if that will is opposed to God's, then it must not be God's will that we would be happy, experience joy, enjoy good things. His will, perhaps, is that we'd be many things. Happy is not one of them. But those who think like that have it all backwards. It is true that in our sinfulness, we, in our sinful desires, we pursue our own good and our own happiness above all else. That, that, that captures our, our desires, that captures our will, captures, yes, even our worship, our own happiness, our own good, our own existence, our own salvation is what captures us. And that is wrong. But the reality is that pursuing our own good and happiness for its own sake does not leave us any happier at the end of the day. When we pursue our own happiness, our own good for its own sake, when we idolize our own happiness, it does not lead to our joy, but it leads to our greater misery. That's the problem. We have not been created to idolize ourselves and seek our own happiness. That's not how we've been made. And so when we pursue that, it's all wrong and it goes all wrong for us. We're made to worship God and to find our joy in that, in worshiping him, to find our joy in him. And as we worship God and discover his will, we realize that he certainly does desire that his people would live and would experience joy and happiness in all that we were made to do. It is God's will that we would experience joy, but not joy as an ultimate end, joy as we pursue our ultimate end of worshiping God. So let's understand then what God's will is. What are we referring to when we speak about God's will? Well, God's will, God's, it's a huge concept in scripture. And theologians have come up with many different ways of, of understanding his will. Some have even divided it into different kinds of will that God has. It's not our intention to speak about all those this afternoon, but this afternoon we are going to Focus on two aspects of God's will. Two aspects of God's will, which are brought out in some way in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Uh, It's a well-known passage where it says, where Moses says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. 
The secret things belong to our Lord, our, the Lord, our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever that we may follow all the words of his law. And so there is a distinction between God's will, his plans. There's the, re- the secret things and the revealed things. The secret things belong to his eternal plan, his eternal purpose for the world. And his revealed things speak about what's given in his law, as Moses says there, his commands, his imperatives, his, his orders for our lives, how we are to live. And so let's talk first about this, the secret things, the eternal plan and purpose that God has. Now, within God's eternal plan, it's true that many things are secret especially concerning what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future. But God has revealed even some of this to us. He's revealed to us what we need to know about his will. Scripture, for example, is very clear that God has an eternal plan. So we know that God has a plan. And God's word reveals that God's plan is for the salvation of his elect. That this plan that is from all eternity is for the salvation of those whom God has chosen to be his own. We know through scripture that God sent Jesus Christ into this world to accomplish that plan. And we know that at the end, Jesus Christ will return when that portion of his eternal plan is completed. When the the number of the elect is full and that Jesus Christ will return to bring judgment and destruction upon all the enemies of God. These things of God's plan are clearly revealed to us, that we might know them and that we might find much confidence in them. But there are other things, of course, that are not revealed to us within God's plan. We don't know, for example, when the end will come. We don't know if that will be today we still have time, or tomorrow, or many, many years from now. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the meantime, even with the church of God. It's not been revealed to us what's going to happen in any one of our lives tomorrow, or in the next five minutes. God has not shown us the details of the future. It's not revealed that to us. It is in his plan, but we don't know what it is. And neither has God given us insight into the relationship between cause and effect in so many of life's events. We don't know why things happen the way that they happen. He doesn't show us why a hurricane comes along and and blasts this city while it leaves that one alone. Why these people are, are, are facing the threat of death every day, and over in this part of the world, peaceful, happy, comfortable. He doesn't show us why one terrorist plot is discovered or why one mass murderer is is caught before they're able to do anything and why another one isn't. That one's allowed to unfold, to wreak havoc and pain and suffering. He hasn't told us why being born in one country means a life of pain while being born in another means a life of comfort.
But since there is so much that we do not know within God's plan, we should not therefore conclude that that God has left us to, to flounder in the present and the future, like we're just supposed to wander without any guide or way. Well, we don't know what's going to happen, so come what may, we'll just do whatever we want. No, God hasn't left us to wander through a sea of options in life without any guidance, but God has given us guidance for life, and that is in the revealed things, His law, His commands. God has given those things that we might walk in the plan laid out for us. God has given us His revealed Word, and particularly the directives and commands found in His Word. He has, for example, commanded us to worship Him alone. He's commanded us not to make idols, not to misuse his name, and to rest and worship every week, to honor our father and mother. God has told us how, moving forward, yes, in the next five minutes, in the next ten years, if we're still here, how to treat our neighbors. And it's going to be the same. What things to avoid, what things to pursue, what our attitude should be in all things, how we should do our work, whether we should do our work, when we should do our work. God has made these things clear to us in his word. Of course, we don't have time to pile up all the commands that God's given us in his word, but he has given us direction, and it's right here in the Bible, that we might know it, that we might take it to heart, that we might walk in the ways that God leads us by it. Reading through God's word will certainly give you an idea of what God's will is. And these are the things then that we must pray for. Accomplishment of God's will in all things, including his eternal plan and purpose, which is unfolding according to his power, but of which there are many things we do not know. But also, we are to pray that we would be obedient to his revealed will every day and that God would accomplish this eternal plan by making us obedient to his commands as we live our lives. That is God's will for us. That is why we pray for God to do that in us. We pray for it because it is God's will. It's what God wants and that is best. That's best for us. And so the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us that we won't find joy in pursuing our own desire, our own sinful desires, but we will certainly find joy in pursuing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as he, he taught his disciples to pray, your will be done, he lived out that prayer. Yes, he even prayed that prayer in his life. In John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus said, my food, my life, my nourishment, and along with that, my joy, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, That will of God for the life of our Lord Jesus Christ did not always result in an immediate, superficial happiness for our Lord Jesus. It wasn't that he waltzed through life singing a a song of joy. 
In fact, Isaiah 53, the prophecy about our Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, says that it was God's will to crush him. To crush him. And to make his life a guilt offering. Our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out in agony. And on the cross... He cried out in agony and pain and suffering because the Lord's will had brought him pain and anguish and suffering and even death on the cross. But yet he never lacked joy. God shows us in his word that Jesus did this for the joy set before him. Not, not a, an immediate, not a light, not a superficial kind of joy, but a deep-seated joy, right along with that deep-down desire to do God's will. And what brought Jesus this joy in his life? It was knowing that God's plan was being moved forward. And that he himself was being obedient to that plan. In fact, it all comes together in the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? By his obedience, he moved forward the plan of God for the salvation of all God's elect. It's in Jesus Christ. And it brought him much joy to see that accomplished. Yes, God was moving forward his plan and Jesus was being obedient for the good, for the very salvation of God's people. It was in knowing that God was being glorified in what our Lord Jesus Christ was going through, which brought him joy. There is most certainly, brothers and sisters, a deep down sense of joy and satisfaction when our Lord Jesus Christ prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That was a prayer that was prayed with joy. May your will be done. It's a prayer that results in our joy as our Lord Jesus accomplished the will of God for our salvation. The angels in heaven as well reveal this character, of course. Their entire purpose, their life, their joy, their meaning, everything and who they are is derived from God's plan. And how his command is accomplished through them. And so they serve readily and cheerfully. You can be sure that if you would ever meet an angel and he was not happy, he was not full of joy, that he would not be an angel, but a demon. Angels are joyful in the service that they offer to God. And so we, brothers and sisters, we often approach the whole concept of the will of God by, by searching deep within ourselves. We think, well, what's God's will for myself? And so I'll, I'll think deeply on it. I'll go deep inside myself to my, my deepest down areas of my life, my stomach, and how am I feeling about things today? We try to discover what's it telling me about what's right and what's wrong. Kind of like the experience I often have going for that midnight snack in the pantry. What's my stomach telling me I want right now? 
This is often the way we approach the will of God, isn't it? What's my, my deep down self telling me is right? But the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray for a radical reorientation so that we would first look not to our deep down desires, but outside of ourselves to God's deep down desires for us and for all things in this world. That's where we're to find our joy. And so in closing, let's touch on two things relating to the secret and the revealed things. First, the secret things. Reality of life in this world is that it's easy to be afraid. Because there's a lot we don't know. There's this fear of the unknown. We're afraid about the future. We're afraid of things that are beyond our grasp. We fear that of what might be coming even sometimes because of what we've suffered in the past. We've gone through this difficult providence. What does providence have ahead for us? But in considering those secret things in the future, we need to remember what God has revealed about the secret things. We need to remember that God is God. That he is in control of this plan that he has. And that the very future that we so often fear connects with the past where he gave his son Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, to restore us to himself, so that in all things, come what may, we are safe with him. That has been accomplished by God's plan. And so we need not fear what his plan will bring us in the future. You're safe with him. And so praying for God's will to be done is an expression of entrusting ourselves and our loved ones into his good and perfect plan. Another thing about the secret things, it's very easy for us to be discontent. We often chafe against the things that God has put in our lives, in our past, or or the way that he's made us. Why has God made me this way? Why do I have this weakness? Why is my metabolism set up in this way? And all of that. But we need to know that God has not revealed why he has done all that he has done. But we need to know that his purpose is good. We need to believe that his purpose is good. He has made you as you are. He has arranged your life in the way that he has arranged it. So that ultimately... His grace and power would be praised uniquely and beautifully in you as you do his will. God has arranged the things of your life according to his plan. And his purpose is that he would be glorified in you and that you would experience much joy and life and satisfaction in him. And so we can be content with the things that he has given us and the way that he has made us and realize that he has done so for the unique, beautiful praise that you alone can offer to him. And now about the revealed things. We need to know that God is capable of handling his secret will. We need to know that he knows the plans he has for us. But what he directs us to do in the here and now is to live by faith. 
to live in all righteousness under our only teacher, king and high priest, Jesus Christ, as we've prayed already this morning, uh, this afternoon. We're to live each day grounded in that gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're to work faithfully in what he has given us to do. To be a dad and a mom and a brother and a sister and a friend in the way that he shows us in his word. He has shown us. To build houses and cars or whatever you're building with integrity. Good work ethic. To nurse, to care compassionately. To do whatever he has called you to do tomorrow with all of your might. Because you are doing it for his kingdom and for his honor. That's his will. And brothers and sisters, if that forms our prayers every morning, as we set out the task before us, how will God, how will God not hear us? answer us and fill us with joy. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.